Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to The Andy Rowe Show. Dr. Nate Zinser is the guy that America's elite sports people turn to when they're looking for that extra edge. Zinser has advised everyone from Olympic champions, Super Bowl winners like Eli Manning, and even the All Blacks mental skills coach on how to stay in the moment and perform at your very best. He's going to give you some practical tips and share the science. So when it's your turn to perform on the sports pitch, or in the boardroom, or even the classroom, you're a picture of swagger and confidence. I hope you enjoy the episode. Once a month, I get a delivery through the letterbox store. Some freshly packaged coffee from packcoffee.com. It comes directly from the farmer, so by the time I put it in my stovetop coffee maker and froth some milk, I'm drinking the freshest, most delicious coffee I've ever made. And if you go to packcoffee.com, that's P-A-C-T, coffee.com, you'll get five quid off your first bag when you create a flexible coffee subscription. And make sure you enter the code Andy Rowe at the checkout. This is really important. You'll get a discount and you'll also show your support for this podcast so I can keep creating more content. Go to packcoffee.com and create your coffee subscription. The code is valid when you create a packed coffee plan for new customers only. Dr. Nate Zinsa or Dr. Z as you're known, thank you very much for coming on the show. Andy, thanks for inviting me aboard. I'm looking forward to this. So am I. The thing is that, you know, I've read your book and it started off like confidence as a topic is quite a broad subject as far as like people either have it or they don't as much as people know. But let's start off and we'll unpick it and talk your way through the subjects of the book. But let's start by defining confidence because this is your speciality, isn't it? So just so we know what we're talking about. Sure. My definition of confidence is a little more sort of functional and performance oriented than what you might find in a dictionary, okay? We all have a sense of confidence as being this sort of vague, intangible attribute. And I like to bring it a little more down to earth, okay? I define confidence as the sense of certainty that you have about an ability or a whole group of abilities which lets you execute those abilities, perform those things, pretty much without having to think about it. The sense of certainty about yourself that allows you to perform or execute more or less unconsciously. And if you think about the best moments you've ever had on a rugby pitch, singing in a choir, taking an exam, anything like that, your best moments have pretty much come when you have allowed yourself or when, or when you have found yourself to be almost automatic, almost unconscious in your execution. We do some pretty complicated things every day as human beings without thinking about them. You know, you think about tying up your shoes, think about doing up the bootlaces, a lot of joints, a lot of muscles, a lot of nerves, a whole lot of things involved in that. But after a certain point, you decided that, hey, I don't have to think about this anymore. I got this. And you perform that very complicated activity pretty much unconsciously. Wouldn't you like to have that same degree of assurance when you are in a job interview, on a pitch in a critical point in a match, other important moments of your life? Good news is that can happen. That is good news. You worked, well, you've worked with a lot of sports people. You work at uh, West Point, um, the military academy in the, in the United States. You've worked with some high-profile people. Gilbert Anoka, who worked with the All Blacks, a, a, a person, someone in a team, someone listening to this podcast is probably quite familiar with. But also the NFL quarterback, Eli Manning. You worked with him quite a bit. He won a Super Bowl, so he's a big deal globally. Two Super Bowls. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and so so you worked with him. I mean, how do you – because that guy, I mean, if he's got to that point, if he's, if he's a quarterback for an NFL team – 
winning Super Bowls. Like already, he's probably got a bit of swagger, a bit of confidence, right? Already, he had a certain knowledge about how well he could play because he played, you know, big time college football here in the states for a very prominent team in a very prominent college league, and he was drafted into the NFL with a very lucrative initial contract. So there was a lot of pressure on him. And that pressure can make anybody, you know, become a little more cautious, become a little more careful, which is actually the exact opposite of the way you want to be when you're playing. You have to be somewhat aggressive, somewhat assertive. You have to indeed be certain about yourself. You can't be worrying about how well you're doing if you indeed actually want to do well. So Eli Manning, like so many other great sport champions, business leaders, he was curious enough about finding just a little edge. He just wanted another 5%, 10% because, you know, at world-class levels, that's pretty much the margin of between victory and defeat. You know, as we look toward the uh, 2022 Beijing Winter Olympics, what's going to determine the gold medal in, say, bobsled figure skating and the fifth place, 10th place, 20th place, it's going to be a pretty small distinction of time in the case of bobsled or, you know, judges' decisions in the case of figure skating. So we're talking about that last, I don't know, 15%, 10%, 5% of your performance excellence that really comes from your state of mind in the moment. And that's what Eli Manning was looking for. What did you do with him? How did you get that extra little bit? Well, we first spent a heck of a lot of time, and this is what I do with pretty much everybody I work with. Let's really take a careful look at what's your state of mind like when you are playing at pretty much the top of your ability. And we contrast that state of mind with, well, what do you like rest of the time? Average every day, not so great performance. Almost everybody says, yeah, when I'm not so great, I'm second guessing. I'm over analytical. That tends to produce worry. That tends to produce fear of a negative consequence. And so we have to one by one chip away at those tendencies to think about negative consequences, to think about the possibilities of poor execution or poor outcome here. We've got to chip away at those mental tendencies that all of us have kind of developed in the course of our decision and training to become good at our sport or our business or our profession, and then really look at how can we optimize, maximize the right kind of memories that we carry around with us? How can we talk to ourselves about ourselves in a very constructive fashion, hour by hour, dare I even say minute by minute? And how can we keep generating the kinds of constructive pictures and video clips and scenarios through our imagination that create a sense of optimism and energy for ourselves. And that takes some practice and that takes some discipline. So in the case of Eli Manning, in the case of so many other people that I worked with, it was really a process of educating about how the mind and the emotions and the body and performance are all interrelated and then just really being systematic to construct a sense of who you are, a sense of what you can do that is completely independent of what might happen, the bad events, the inevitable bad bounces, the inevitable human mistakes that you're going to commit, independent of all of that, can you maintain a really constructive overall sense of yourself? When you look at confidences, like, I remember growing up and, and you'd be in class and I wouldn't have the confidence to put my hand up. It would scare the shit out of me. But you'd ha always have the kids that would put their hand up. Or you have the kids that play the clown, the kids that like being on stage, the kids that are born with confidence. Is it not something that, like what I just said, is it not something you're just born with? Because some people do seem to have more than others straight away. I think there is a very small genetic predisposition for confidence. Yeah, there's. I, I love the way you put it, that sort of, naturally outgoing, uninhibited kid who didn't mind getting up on stage, who didn't mind raising her hand, you know, even if she didn't get it right. But much more important to all of us are the messages that we received from mom, dad, teachers, older siblings, 
about how good we were with stuff. Mm. And I think so much of confidence is in fact learned. I would go so far as to say so much of our, you know, the confidence that we see in a lot of young kids actually gets socialized out of them once they go to school and their each and every mistake that they make on the spelling test or the arithmetic test is marked with a great big red X so it stands out. So we have a tendency to be more emotionally affected by our mistakes and our setbacks mm. than we are about our successes and our progress. Unless, of course, we've got really good mentors and really good teachers who are careful enough to point out to each of us as we're coming through these developmental years, you're making progress here. You're getting better here. You're getting better here, even though you may not be the top of the heap. And that, that's my long-winded way of saying so much of confidence is a function of what we learn as we're coming up and so much a function of how we have learned to think about ourselves. Hmm. In a way, Andy, that's the bad news. The good news is that because it's learned, well, then daggone it, you can learn it. And one of the most important outcomes in my whole career doing this was something that occurred in the 2002 Winter Olympics in Salt Lake City, 20 years ago, that was the first time there was a women's bobsled competition in the Olympics. It had been around on the World Cup circuit for a few years. And the first gold medal winner was a young lady by the name of Jill Bakken with a push athlete by the name of Vanetta Flowers. Live television, they come down the track, they win the gold medal, everybody's going crazy, waving American flags and CBS sportscaster Mary Carrillo goes right over to Jill Bakken, shoves the microphone in her face and says, Jill, you were the number two sled. You weren't a medal favorite. How the heck did you do it? Jill Bakken just said very modestly and quietly because she is a very quiet, respectful, polite individual. She said, well, we just had confidence and that's what we had to go with. And that comment knocked me right out of the chair watching it on TV because 14 months prior to that race, Jill Bakken and I sat down at a hotel lobby in Park City, Utah, right below the track that she was going to race on, hopefully. She hadn't even made the Olympic team. This is December 2000, 14 months prior to the game. She looked me in the eye and said, Doc, I could sure use more confidence. 14 months later, she's an Olympic gold medalist, and she explains her success, in a, at least at, in part, due to confidence. I guess, ladies and gentlemen, that means you can learn it. You can develop it. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's something we'll, we'll start to learn over the course of this conversation as well because there's, there's interesting little methods and tasks that you can do that you talk about in your book that, that we'll go through. As far as athletes being successful and building confidence, isn't that just – isn't it down to a lot of success that you have? Like the more successful, obviously, the more more confident you're going to be. Yes and no. There are plenty of athletes out there who have had a ton of confidence, but because they don't think about it, they don't reflect upon it, they don't dwell upon their confidence, on their successes, their confidence doesn't necessarily grow. Unfortunately, a lot of these folks dwell upon their relatively few defeats, mistakes, and setbacks. And because that's all they think about, or because that's what they think about the vast majority of the time, they don't develop the confidence despite having, as you say, all that fine success. So as I point out in the book, it's not about what happens to you. It's how you think about what happens to you. So how does the mind-body connection, the, what, what is that and, and how does that work? The way I've understood this is that pretty much our conscious thoughts, the memories that we carry around with us and the things that we keep saying to ourselves all day long, they really influence our state of emotion, how we feel in a given moment, whether we are eager, whether we're worried, whether we're excited, whether we're scared. That emotional state has very, very direct consequences in terms of our actual physiology. I'm, I'm talking about muscle tension. I'm talking about blood flow. I'm talking about pupil dilation. I'm talking about things that directly affect us on a physical level which of course affects us in terms of our performance because everything we do, and I'm not just talking about rugby, 
and, and, and or, or football. I'm talking about playing the guitar, playing the piano. I'm talking about even writing that essay on the history exam at university. Everything we do, we do with our body. And if our bodies are compromised, tense, tight, narrowly focused, because our emotional state is one of concern and self-doubt, because our thoughts are all about, I better not mess this up. This is really important. Oh, I can't believe I didn't get that first answer right. Oh, I can't believe we didn't score on our first possession of the ball. If our thoughts aren't right, our emotions aren't right. If our emotions aren't right, our body isn't right. If our body mm. isn't right, we don't execute to the extent that we can. And then we tend to think about our last execution, and it becomes a cycle. It's that thing when you... Uh out having a hit of golf with your mates or you're playing tennis something like that and you have a you hit a bad shot and that you feel that kind of i don't know if it's anxiety but you feel something and you're like you can't you can't shake it you can't get it out of your system i will point out that you can get it out of your system it might take a little practice it might take a little change in your whole perspective on the game but you can get out of it. But if you don't, absolutely. Now you are in that cycle. Now you are wondering about how you're going to hit your next shot, how you're going to play the next hole, how this entire round of golf is going to turn out. Mm. And that, Andy, is what mental discipline is really all about. Are you going to be in control of yourself or are you going to let simple human execution, the bad bounce of a ball, a gust of wind, or the fact that Hey, maybe the maybe one of your mates that you're playing this round with is just having the luckiest round of his life. You know, are you going to let any of that influence your state of mind before each and every shot that you play? So, how do you get it out of your system? How do you how do you hit that good shot? I'm hoping that you will have in your back pocket a whole lot of memories of hitting great shots. I hope you will have in your back pocket the memory of playing a remarkably great back nine even once upon a time when you had a lousy front nine okay if you have that repository of memories in your back pocket what i refer to as a psychological bank account it's easy to change your mind it's easy to get out of that sewer cycle or get out of that red head status and get on to the success cycle. If you've practiced talking to yourself constructively during all your you know, practice time, during your time away from the golf course, then it's a whole lot simpler to say, okay, well, that was a lousy shot. Yeah, I hit that one wrong. Okay, but it was just that shot on that hole, just in that place. Now I get a chance to hit a beauty on my next drive. Now I get a chance to drain my next 12-foot putt. It's the ability to keep the imperfection, the mistake, the setback in a very one-time, one-place, limited perspective. But remembering positive results and filtering them and bringing them out when you need to, it's, it's easier said than done, though, isn't it? Like, how, do you, how do you put that into practice? I know, I know it's, it's very easy to say, okay, remember, remember a good shot, and then the next time you have a bad shot, pull that out, and you're going to feel good. It's easy to talk about it. It's something of a challenge to do it. I urge people to embrace that challenge. And I have to remind people that, guess what? That guy that you're playing golf against, that team that is wearing the other color jersey on the rugby pitch, hey, they're going to have setbacks. They're going to have self-doubt too. All you got to do is be a little bit better at it than your comp competitor or your opponent. And if you do that, you just created yourself an advantage. Do you find that people like Eli Manning are at that level perfectionists? And that's why they spend so much time nailing down their role that they can be confident and they can be full of swagger because they know that they're going to hit that pass or they're going to deliver that speech or deliver that presentation in front of the boardroom perfectly because they've rehearsed it so many times and they've made sure they got it right so many times that it can't go wrong. It's interesting that you use those that choice of words, Andy, because that's exactly the sort of practice ethic 
that you see in an Eli Manning. He would actually use the phrase, I'm going to practice this not till I get it right. I'm going to practice it till I can't get it wrong. That's a very powerful way to go about it, putting in the work. I'm the first person to suggest that success in human performance has a heck of a lot to do with your competence. And that competence is a function of how hard you work and how hard you prepare. And that perfectionistic streak that you're referring to is really valuable to help motivate you to put in the hours, to put in the time, to make sure that the hours that you're putting in are really effective. The whole idea of deliberate practice as opposed to just practice. That is practice right at the edge of your ability. That is an excellent quality. So that perfectionism that you're describing is wonderful up to a point. And the point where it starts to work against you is the point where anytime you are not perfect, be it in practice, let alone be it in in an actual performance, whenever you're not perfect, you beat yourself up, you worry about your next rep, you say, daggone it, that wasn't perfect. And you can't live with yourself in the absence of that perfection. So the guideline that I would share with any of your listeners is absolutely strive for perfection. Strive for perfection in your study, in your practice, in your preparation. Strive for perfection, of course, at every moment in your performance. But don't demand it of yourself. Don't beat yourself up when it doesn't happen. Because let's face it, as perfect as you attempt to be, you're bound to fail. The finest quarterback in American football is a fellow by the name of Tom Brady. Watch Tom Brady play at any point in his career. Was he great? Yes. Was he excellent? Yes. Was he perfect? No. If he throws 35 passes in the course of a game, there are going to be four of them that are off target. Overthrown, underthrown, bad decision on his part. He's not going to be perfect, but he's learned to live with that degree of imperfection and not cause it to get him thinking with doubt and fear and worry. We talked before about being nervous before you put your hand up in class or if you're around the boardroom table putting saying something and, and the sort of the fear of it getting shut down or the, just that nervousness beforehand. Or there's a guy, Matt Fraser, who was the five-time CrossFit champion, the fittest man on earth for five years running. He talks about spewing up before every event. How do you deal with that? Because it's something that can put a stop to you actually doing the task that you want to do. Well, my first reaction to that is, hey, let's be sure that we have a, at least a good understanding of what's going on. We are all human beings and we are biologically wired, hardwired to experience a biochemical shift when we're about to do something that's important, when we're about to do something that matters to us, whether it's participating in a CrossFit championship or taking that uh, calculus final exam, entering that job interview, our bodies naturally produce chemical changes, produce changes in the activity of our central and peripheral nervous system, which are designed to help us be more effective in those moments. Now, right there, that's got to tell you, hey, those nerves actually show up in order to help me. Okay, your brain knows that something big is about to happen. CrossFit championship, final exam, whatever it is. So your brain naturally sends messages all through your body. Hey, everybody, wake up. We're going in to do something important. Mm. Get busy. So your adrenal glands produce adrenaline, which gets dumped into your bloodstream, which goes back to your heart, which makes your heart beat faster so that you can get more blood out to your muscles so that your muscles can work longer, faster, better. It opens up your pupils. So you can see more. At the same time, it excites your nerves. So your muscles begin to twitch a little bit because they're getting a little more stimulation. And we have hundreds of millions of neurons lining our stomach. And those neurons start to flash a little brighter, a little more often. And that can produce that butterfly sensation in your stomach because now your stomach muscles being a little bit stimulated. 
So you have to think of those butterflies as a side effect of this overall performance enhancing biochemical change that we are designed as human beings to have. Occasionally, those butterflies in the stomach get pretty intense, which is why Matt Frazier and a whole lot of other people are indeed going to spew before they compete. But I'll bet all the money in my bank account right now that Matt Frazier is happy when he spews because he knows that the fact that he's spewing means that his body is turning on elevating itself. He knows that he has state-of-the-art performance-enhancing chemicals produced by his body's own pharmacy showing up right when he needs them prior to that event, designed in the right dosage to help him out, and they don't cost him anything, and they don't show up on a urine test. They're perfectly <laughs> legal. So he's thinking, yes, this means I'm ready. And this is what a lot of performers have finally learned that when my body goes through this change, even though it's a little weird, even though it's a little uncomfortable, it's the right thing for my body to do, so I actually look forward to it. I have fallen in love with my butterflies. I know they are the messenger of a great thing that's happening. If you were nervous before a public speaking event, which is a lot of people get nervous before public before public speaking, there you go. That was a nervous. That was just me not being able to get my words out. But a lot of people get nervous before a public speaking event, and they fear what is going to happen when they get up there. They go red. They. It's not a nice feeling. It's not. You would prefer it if those things weren't. If the butterflies weren't there, and you were able to just to calmly go up there and talk to a group of people or talk. Which to a might class. result in a really boring speech mm. if you're completely calm and at ease. I would tell the person who's nervous about public speaking to say, yeah, you're nervous for a good reason. Your body's elevating your overall energy level so that you can get up there and be alive and alert and project well and listen well when it's time for the question and answer part of your speech. This is going to make you a more exciting, more alive, more engaging speaker. You want this. Oh, but Dr. Z, it feels so uncomfortable. It's so abnormal. And I have to say, well, of course it feels abnormal. You're about to do something that is, by definition, abnormal. Why the heck would you expect to feel perfectly normal about it? Mm. Come on, let's interpret it that way. Let's understand it that way. That will help you in the moment. When you feel those butterflies kicking in, you get to say to yourself, yep, this is my body turning on. It's making me better. It's preparing me for this challenge. I'm grateful to have it. Here we go, folks. Let's rock. This is the autonomic nervous system. If I said that right, that's what that is, isn't it? Autonomic, meaning you don't have a whole lot of control over it. It does its thing all by itself. Right. Gotcha. Gotcha. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Just getting those, training yourself to to have that bank of positive and constructive memories that you talked about. You talk about a ESP, effort, success, progress. Talk the listener through how that works and what that means and how it will help you. We've been stressing all along that your confidence your certainty that allows you to be as effective and instinctive in your performance 
is really a function of a long-standing repository of thoughts that you have about yourself. That certainty is a result of all the memories that you've chosen to carry around with you. So I advise people to really be deliberate and conscious about constructing a big, big, big repository of helpful memories. So every day, look back on your day and filter your memories. Filter out, deliberately look for effort, E for effort. Where did I put in quality effort today? Where did I overcome a little procrastination? Where did I do something that I might not have really wanted to do, but I did it anyway because I knew I had to? Where in my workout, in my team practice, did I bear down and give a good quality effort? Write down two or three things that meet those criteria from today alone. If you look for them, you'll find them. Secondly, look at that day and again, filter what happened and filter into your memory a few small successes. S stands for success. What did I get right? What question did I answer in class? What drill did I perform well in practice today? What comp compliment might I have gotten? Look for those particular small, however small they might be, episodes of success in your day. And then again, filter the day and look for something that gives you an indication that you're making progress. What does it seem like you're getting better at based on what happened today, what happened yesterday, what happened the day before? What are you getting a little bit better at? ESP, effort, success, progress. That reflective exercise might take you five minutes, but if you do it on a daily basis, it's like you're putting money in the bank every day. You're making deposits. You're building up that bank account. As one professional hockey player you know, responded when I explained this, he says, wow, I can get really rich. And he wasn't just talking about money, but he was talking about, yeah, I can develop a sense of myself as really being effective. And that's what you want to do by regularly, consistently filtering the day's memories and bringing into your consciousness by writing them down on paper, episodes of effort, success, and progress. And does that kind of weave into positive affirmations? Because there's science behind the self affirmations and, and how they work, isn't there? Absolutely. Those affirmation statements also become deposits into that mental bank account. I tend to think of the memories as memories. There's things that happened in your past and you want to bring them in and use them. But how about the things that you say to yourself about yourself in the present all day long? I'm good at this. I'm not good at that. I like this about myself. I wish this was different. I coach people to be very careful and select out maybe a skill that they'd like to be better at, a quality they would like to have in their day or in their sport, and really an outcome that they'd like to achieve. World CrossFit champion, Wimbledon champion, uh, NCAA All-American, national champion. Write out a statement about the skill, the quality, and the outcome. Three statements where you actually state what it is that you want, but you state it as, as if you have it. You know, for the tennis player, my cross-court backhand is deep and surprises my opponent. That's what you want. Stated as if you have it. Initiates a self-fulfilling prophecy. Makes it more likely that you are going to hit that cross-court backhand with full effort rather than hit the cross-court backhand tentatively and, tentatively and cautiously. That's a skill that I want. I'm going to affirm it. I'm going to make a statement about it in the first person, in the present tense, as if I've already got it. There's a quality I want to have. Again, just staying with the tennis example. I am totally focused at the start of each point. And then an outcome. I am the 2022 club champion. I am the 2022 league champion. I break the top 10 worldwide in year 2022. You are affirming, saying yes to an outcome, just as you affirm or say yes to a quality you want to have, you affirm and say yes to a skill that you want to have. Every one of those statements is another deposit into that bank account. I'm the number one podcast in the UK. How about it?
You know, if that's what you want, that's what you need to affirm because that affirmation actually will encourage you to do the things that will indeed make you the number one podcaster in the UK. Wasn't there a story about some hotel workers? Yeah. Is it Scrum and Langer, their case study? Can you tell me about that? Yeah, Alia Crum and Ellen Langer at Harvard did a remarkable study looking at just changing the way hotel housekeeping workers thought about their work. And they found that if they were able to constructively change the way they thought about their work from, oh, this is just work to, hey, I'm getting really good exercise every day, you know, changing these beds, vacuuming these floors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The hotel workers who changed their thoughts to that complex actually lost weight and reduced their blood pressure. Even though they didn't do any more actual work, they didn't do the work any faster. It was the same amount of physical effort, same amount of, I guess you could say, calories exerted, but they lost weight relative to their counterparts doing the same work who continued with the thought process, well, my work is just work and I don't get much exercise. Something about the shift in mindset my work is good exercise, had physical effects on their body weight and on their blood pressure. I think that's kind of remarkable. Is there a risk, though, that people become a little bit delusional about the amount of exercise they're doing? Because <laughs> you know, everyone knows that person that worked. It's like, yeah, I go to the gym five days a week, and you, you know you don't. <laughs> no, no, you, you don't. don't. Right. You're just, you're just blowing smoke. Yeah. Okay. Really, the only risk of dare I use the term overconfidence or false confidence is when you actually don't do the work to back it up. Yeah, the guy who says, yo, I'm in the gym every day at 7 a.m. No, you're not. You're in the gym two days a week at 7 a.m. Don't give me this crap. So it, you, know, you have to be honest with yourself. But I will point out that a certain degree of, I'll call it constructive delusion, is actually very valuable. When you think about it, pretty much every breakthrough in your life started out from a place of constructive delusion. When you were trying to learn how to ride a bicycle, you, you had no evidence that you could do it, but you had an idea that it was possible. In a way, you were deluding yourself that once you got on the seat and you pedaled right and you had the right tension in the handlebars and all this stuff, you were going to be able to ride your bike down the street just like all those other kids that you saw. Mm. Okay. In a way, that was delusional, but it was constructive. Thinking about yourself as the number one podcaster in the UK. Delusional. Is that a delusion? Maybe. Is it a delusion that, fun that pushes you in the right direction? Is it a delusion that actually encourages you to get good quality guests on, to manage your time right, to make sure that all your technology is, is, is top flight? then I guess it's a pretty darn good delusion to entertain. Hang on to it, Andy. Oh, hang on to it. You're right. You've got me. <laughs> a lot of the delusion, I suppose, like you go from delusion into what you would call envisioning, which a lot of people would call visualization, which is such a, it feels like a new age thing. It feels a little bit eerie-fairy to some people, but there's actually like evidence-based, scientific evidence-based things that show that it works, isn't it? Absolutely. Envisioning a desired outcome or envisioning a desired behavior very clearly activates the same neural pathways which are involved in the actual behavior that we're talking about. So envisioning that tennis serve, envisioning that penalty kick, envisioning making scoring that try activates a lot of the same nerves that are involved in the actual physical motion of those things. So what you're doing with the right kind of quality envisioning is actually giving your motor programs repetitions. You're becoming more expert. It's creating changes in your nervous system, which are helpful in terms of refining your the actual quality of your execution. Everybody has had the experience of drifting off to sleep and having a dream 
in which they find themselves physically moving. Mm. And then they wake up from the dream and their heart is pounding and their muscles are twitching and they're sweating. Well, wait a minute. Why is your heart pounding? You're not in a uh, state of stress or alarm for any particular reason. You know, there aren't bombs going off outside your house. There's no reason for your body to go to be in that elevated, excited state. Ah, yes, there is. Because the picture in that dream was vivid enough to activate your entire nervous system. The nervous system doesn't often determine or distinguish between an actual event and a vividly imagined event. That's interesting. It's like you're, you're actually building a physical neural pathway by thinking about it. Indeed, and the science has supported that. We now have the technology to scan brains and see which parts of the brain are lighting up and how much gray matter is building in a certain part of the brain. And so we can instruct a group of subjects to actually practice something, uh, a scale on the piano, a simple physical motion, physical practice, and then just mental practice of the same scale. And we can see a very similar change in the part of the brain that controls those finger movements. There's change as a result of physical practice, but there is also pretty much the same degree of change in the physical gray matter in your brain as a result of simply mental practice. There was a study about it helping cancer patients, the same technique. There seems to be some evidence as far as that goes as well. Creating a representation of your cancer shrinking, breaking up, dissolving into little pieces and then floating down the river to the sea, there is some evidence to suggest that that actually helps. I would certainly use it in conjunction with uh, proper chemotherapy, proper radiation therapy. There's a wonderful case study of a guy who said, okay, cancer, you're in my body. You're going to get the heck out. And every time he went to the bathroom, he thought about those cancer cells leaving his body. There is absolutely no reason not to do that. Mm. There's no downside. There's no, no possible negative effect. We're just at the threshold of having the kind of methodology and diagnostic equipment that could allow us to separate how much of the reduction of, say, a tumor, how much of a wound heals as a result of various medical treatments, you know, conventional medical treatments, chemotherapy, radiation in the case of cancer, and how much is due to actual mental factors. One study that I love to show people about this involves wound healing, where a team of researchers at Ohio State University here in the States deliberately wounded two groups of volunteers. One group of volunteers was full-time caregivers to Alzheimer's patients, people who are constantly in the stressful moments of responding to an Alzheimer's patient's needs and forgetfulness hour by hour by hour. That's their job. That's a pretty stressful job. Mm. The researchers took a sample of that population and then took a sample of people who were at the same age, had the same financial circumstances, so that wasn't contributing to their overall level of stress, but whose lives otherwise were considerably less stressful than the lives of the caregivers. Both of these groups of subjects were administered a standardized burn wound about the size of a pencil eraser, a standardized quarter-inch wound with basically a branding iron. A medical-grade branding iron, ladies and gentlemen. Come on. We're not talking about being sadistic here, okay? <laughs> and then those wounds were photographed over time. And on average, the wounds of the low-stress group healed nine days before the wounds of the highly-stressed group. Now, that is a significant difference. So, and it really points to the fact that the whole biochemistry of healing is affected by our state of mind. If we are in a state of ease versus a state of worry, our body responds differently. So for all of you out there doing serious workouts, 
where you're breaking up muscle tissue, try to be the most mellow, <laughs> relaxed, happy individual in between workouts. And for those of you who are suffering into your cruciate ligament surgical repair, sprained ankles, etc., etc. Hey, how about making yourself the happiest individual on the block? Because I'm pretty sure that's going to help you heal faster. You have like a seven-step method for that envisaging, don't you? There is very clear guidance. The book Getting Well Again by Carl and Stephanie Simonton, uh, that goes back to the late 70s. Uh, and that is the classic uh, study of how to use imagery in terms of disease. And they are indeed a very clear seven-step process that involves deliberate physical relaxation, the creation of a picture of the injury or the illness, the deliberate creation of a some kind of healing factor that's changing that, the deliberate creation of the image of that healing factor doing its work, and then culminating in the deliberate imagery of you being in vibrant good health, or in case of the injured athlete, returning to competition and dominating. I have walked hundreds of injured, injured athletes through that kind of sequence. Really? Oh, yes. And I have created for them customized audio tracks, customized narrations that allow them to get a clear image of the pulled hamstring or the uh, ruptured knee ligament and then deliberately feel, and I have to talk to them about how they think the healing might come about, and then we narrate a scenario which allows them to image the feeling returning to full form, and then there's a little bit of imagery of stepping out onto the field, feeling the sun, and, and seeing the green grass, and feeling the excitement of game day, and then take them through a few performance scenarios. The, the whole idea is managing your cognitions, managing your emotions, so as to optimize all those healing resources that exist within the body. So it's all very well having all this confidence and in going into a situation, but of course there's that phrase of the enemy getting a vote. Things don't always go the way you envisage. Uh, I think you call it flat tires. You know, when things go wrong and your confidence takes a dip, you know, you, you might be behind on the scoreboard or you might be doing that presentation and you get fired some curveballs and you're like, I don't know the answer to that. Or what you might have problems along the way. And then all of a sudden everything that you thought about and envisaged is out the window and you are in the shtick. Well, how about preparing yourself for some of those potential difficulties? What I refer to as flat tires, you know? You should know how to change a tire in your car before you start driving it. So that the first time you have to change the flat tire, it's not in the dark, in the rain, <laughs> In a strange neighborhood, okay, it's inconvenient as heck if you have to change the tire at any point. But if you know how to change the tire, it's a whole lot simpler than having to do it woo, for the first time in a strange environment. Mm. By the same token, you want to be able to respond to, hey, hey, we're down by a couple of tries and there's only five minutes on the clock because the, indeed the enemy does get a vote. Things do go wrong. I had a conversation just the other day with the man who was in the middle of a TED talk and he, he took a, an aggressive step to dramatize a point and his pants ripped. Oh God. Nobody plans on that. Yeah. But having anticipated other potential difficulties, like there being a hang up with the uh, audio video technology, like the room being cold, having initially stumbled over the something in the first two minutes of his talk, having anticipated that, having planned on how I will respond to that kind of situation, because he had done a whole bunch of sort of flat tire preparation, when his pants ripped, something completely unanticipated, he was able to put himself in a, in a condition of, okay, well, let's see how well I can handle this. And so his confidence did not take a knock. Mm. He was able to move smoothly into the completion of his speech. And everybody can do that. I reckon, recommend that you be honest with yourself. What might knock you off kilter? What might set you back? Being behind by five minutes, are you ready for that? Okay, what if a starting member of your team 
is out and somebody else has to come in. Are you ready to handle that? If you go through a whole bunch of these scenarios, well, you're ready for them. You know how you're going to respond and get right back on the road. And if you do that a few times with a bunch of different, you know, probably quite likely scenarios, quite possible scenarios, then when something weird out of the blue happens, like your pants ripping unexpectedly, you can handle that one too. I guess there's a danger of slipping into a negative frame of mind though, isn't there? Is there a scientific method to, to, to turn that around? Because sometimes you might just get bad thing after bad thing after bad thing happen. And it's, it's a very hard light to see at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. When bad things happen over and over and over again, it is a real challenge to maintain any kind of optimism. But that's when you need it the most. So there's nothing that you have to do differently after a repeated setback. You've just got to stay with the fundamentals. That's all there is. Mm. That's when the fundamentals are most important, of greatest importance. Anybody can feel good when things are swimming along fine. It's a bit of a challenge when you hit a setback. It's a bit more of a challenge after two or three setbacks. But isn't that when you need it most? Isn't that when it's most important? Isn't that when you have the ability to take ridiculously high pride in yourself for having not allowed the third, the fourth, the fifth setback to really make you question yourself overall? This is the shooter's mentality. That's, that's a handy one to have, isn't it? <sighs> yeah. The great shooters, whether we're talking basketball, lacrosse, soccer, archery, <laughs> Olympic-level rifle, if you miss and miss again and miss again, the only thought in your head is, okay, well, I'm due to go on a hot streak and get back to my law of averages, get back to my good level. The fact that I'm shooting poorly at the moment doesn't mean that I'm a bad shooter. It just means I'm due to get a whole lot of them in. And everybody has the capability to create that kind of mentality for oneself. I understand it's unusual, but it is very, very constructive. I recommend it. Do you think this sort of stuff, uh, the one glaringly obvious thing, I think you kind of touched on it at the start, is that it's not taught in schools. It's not something that is mainstream. And even talking about confidence or doing a podcast on confidence or um, interviewing someone on confidence, it's a unless you're actually go fully into it and, and make an effort to understand it, it doesn't seem mainstream. It doesn't seem on the surface that it would be scientific, but it's not taught anywhere. Yeah, that's the, that's the sad part, isn't it, Andy? It's not taught. As a matter of fact, a lot of us are taught not to think confidently. We are taught, remember your mistakes and failures because that's what's going to fire you up mm. to work hard and be better. Well, you hear that a lot in sport. They'll be hurting after that loss. They'll use that loss as motivation. They'll always come back stronger after a loss. You hear that all the time, don't you? You hear it all the time. To a certain extent, it's true. But do you really want to carry around the sting of a defeat? I'm not sure that's what motivates people, okay? It might create a short-term burst of energy, that anger. I got to get after it. Dang, I don't want to ever feel that way again. Okay. But does that actually motivate you more than thinking about how you want to be, thinking about how great it feels when you are effective? Which produces a greater amount of energy? I think it's the latter. And by the way, lingering on that the sting of that loss okay yeah there's a there's a surge of energy but boy there is also a residue of resentment anger mm. frustration disappointment in oneself none of that's going to help you i i really encourage people to you know have a very selective memory if you can honestly say that you know recalling that stinging loss is what gets you through a tough practice session, then I'm not going to tell you to stop doing it. If you can honestly look yourself and look me in the eye and say, yeah, that actually helps me think when I think that way, as opposed to thinking in several other ways that are, you know, possible, then you go ahead and do it. I do not use the term positive thinking in my work much at all. 
I don't encourage people to think sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows because we don't live in a world of sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows, especially here in the military. You know, we live in a world of deadlines, effort, sweat, blisters. Oh, and we live in a world where the enemy gets a vote. So it's not all sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows. I don't use the word positive. I use the word constructive, and I use the word effective. What is actually most constructive in helping you create the state of mind that allows your training and your talent and your enthusiasm, your motivation to actually express itself in the moment? What's that state of mind? Let's work toward that. Is there the quiet mind that you talk about, or can you talk to me about how that impacts performance and what that is? Well, there is, again, overwhelming scientific evidence that human performance is positively related to, as one neuroscientist put it, an economy of brain activity. Meaning, when I'm trying to hit that tennis shot, or I'm trying to answer that calculus question, the only parts of my brain that need to be engaged are the parts of my brain that actually are involved in the performance of that task. I do not need to have a whole lot of other brain functions going on. The brain functions about, oh, what happens if I don't get this serve in? Oh, what happens if I miss this problem? It's worth 10 points. If I miss this 10 points and I've missed, I know I missed that question, how, what kind of good score can I get? Those mental activities are irrelevant to the actual execution of the tennis serve or the actual answering of the calculus problem. So the whole idea is that your mind can be indeed quiet. We have this misconception that, you know, concentration or focus is a complicated process where we have to get more of our brain working. No, the neuroscience is quite clear on this. In the state of high concentration, whether it's on the tennis court, on the rugby pitch, in the classroom, that high concentration is actually the result of a brain that has relatively little going on. The only parts of the brain that are lit up where the neurons are firing are the parts of the brain that are directly involved in the execution of the serve or solving the problem. All the other brain centers, they've dropped out. They're unnecessary. And the result is that quiet flow type experience that people love to have. Well, let's get yourself ready for that. Let's make your brain a little more flow friendly. And by cultivating the sense of certainty, you allow yourself to sort of release a lot of unnecessary stuff, contributing to the quiet brain. Again, giving yourself a chance to be really effective. So you've done all the training and you're about to deliver on that training and competition, or you're about to deliver that presentation at work. You want to get into that state of quiet brain. How do you do that? The first thing is to understand that you're not going to deliberately create a tired brain or, or a quiet brain the way you're going to deliberately push yourself to get that last repetition on the bench press. It's different. Everybody has had the experience, I hope, in their lives of looking at the sky as the sun is setting and watching the colors and shadows. And there's that momentary... Ah, that's what we're after. My recommendation to follow up on your question, you're about to step into that arena. Okay, you can do a quick mental inventory of a lot of the work you've done. You can do a quick reminder of your effort and success and progress. And you, then you take a couple of breaths and then you open your eyes to the field, to the room. And really the last thought you have is, let's see how great I can be at this moment. And then just as you're watching, just as you let everything go, as you watch the beautiful colors and shades in the sunset, you just let everything else go and you almost dive headlong into the moment. That's as close as I can get it in terms of a prescription. I think the key is what you're saying is let's see how good I can be in that moment rather than I've worked so hard to get to this moment. Rather than I've worked so hard, this is what matters, I've got to be great here. Dr. Nate Zinser, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Andy, thank you for the privilege of being on with you. My best wishes to 
all of your listeners uh, for a very safe, very happy, very healthy, very confident 2022. <laughs> if you enjoyed this interview, make sure you get your hands on Dr. Nate Zintz's latest book. It's called The Confident Mind. And please do share this podcast with your mates on social media. Don't forget to tag me in it as well. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.